Hey, and welcome to Tomorrow. I'm your host, Joshua Topolsky. Today on the podcast, we discuss drills, doobies, and Donald Trump. I don't want to waste one minute, so let's get right into it. All right, my guest today is uh, an old friend, a new old friend. <laughs> you like that shit? That's how we're starting. Okay. Uh, That's how it's going to be. That's the author of the uh, New York Times bestselling book, Game Change. Is it a New York Times bestselling book? I made that up. It was the New York Times number one bestseller. Number for, one bestselling book. For I, be, for I believe like seven Game Change. Weeks. He's yeah. the host of, with all due respect, on Bloomberg yeah. Television and MSNBC. Yeah. Now syndicated. Yeah. Uh, he is the star of Showtime's The Circus. Am I right so far? And also- And the uh, managing editor of Bloomberg Politics, a website. Yes. I'm going to be very Topolsky-like and My guess- say also, I was a, I'm also a co-creator and executive producer of the circus, and you forgot Double Down, the follow-up, also New York Times. That's right. Time. That's right. Double Down. He created- John Heilman is my guest, of course, and he created the- uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken Double Down Sandwich. Man, that sandwich is fucking <laughs> badass. You've never had it. You told me no, before. But it we looks badass. It. it looks badass. The chicken is the bun, man. The, John wrote a book, Game Change, colon, Double Down. No, Game Change was the first book. No, no, but then there's no Game called, Change in the second. The first book was called Game Change. Okay. Obama and Clinton, McCain and Palin, The Race of a Life. Which was turned into a, a tremendous HBO film. That was very, that was very and well And if you done. haven't seen it, go right now to HBO Go and watch the fucking thing. That was basically about the Sarah Palin couple chapters in the book. And then the it, second book, four years later, about the 2012 election. The first one was about 2008. The second one was about 2012. And that was right. called Double Down Game Change 2012. Stakes were slightly lower in 2012. Yeah. So there is was, game, game say, changes. I wouldn't in, say the stakes were lower. It just so was. It was a less interesting story. I just want to be clear. It's double down colon game change twenty twelve. Correct. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to know where the colon. That's was. for the branding. That's okay. the, we, we yes we went for the branding thing again on and, the second book. And he won't tell you this, but I'm gonna I'm gonna just put it out there because I think truth is important. Okay. He's never had the double down sandwich. I've never had the double down sandwich. Well, I I've have. seen a lot of pictures I of have. it, and you loved it too. It was fucking amazing. Right, right. Dude, I just I, I said this already to you because the chicken is the bun. But I want the listener to understand that the chicken is the is the bun. There's the no chicken. bread. They put chicken instead of the bread. And who doesn't love fried fried chicken? And who doesn't love fried chicken? Well, being the bun? I mean, I I, I am staunchly, uh, firmly against fried chicken at this point in my life. Really? Why? I don't think we should be eating animals if we can help it. Are you really? Have you gone vegetarian? I eat fish. Okay, you're like pescatarian? Yeah, basically. I don't okay. like that word, though, because I think it's bullshit. As long as you're not like a fruitarian, like Steve Jobs was for a while. <laughs> I'm not a fruitarian, and I'm also That's very, a... I'm extremely into vaccines. Yeah. I'm extremely into modern, any modern medical treatment yeah. and painkillers of all types. Yeah. Right? I got some of those in my pocket. <laughs> Do you? Yeah. Ugh, this is going to give me a four you hour. You forgot to ask. You know what? I'm asking now. What kind of painkillers do you have with you, John? None of your fucking business. You have a bad back, right? I, I got everything. I'm sorry. Of course, I air quotes, a bad back. <laughs> everything on me is good, Josh. <laughs> All right. So anyhow, John, John is a man who is, you are uh, just fucking stewing in the juices of the 2016 election cycle. Do you agree or disagree with that? I don't really love the metaphor. It's a little disgusting, but yeah, you're like, like I'm, I'm you're, but those juices are just there. Every part of your body yes. is drenched in like a Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton. I spend, I spend pretty much all of my waking hours thinking about, talking about, making television about, writing about, and reporting on the 2016 presidential race. Yes. So let's go back a little bit. I want to go back like uh, to the, be not the very beginning of your career, but early in your career. <laughs> the very beginning of my you life. Weren't like a, you weren't a politics guy early in your career. 
Well, strictly, you weren't a strictly politics guy. No. Well, I mean, I've done a bunch of things. So the, when I, I was really interested in politics and I was really interested in culture when I got out of college and I sort of decided that politics would be my vocation and culture would be my avocation as it were. And when I first started working in magazines, um, I was mostly writing about politics, but it was at a very low level. I mean, I was in graduate school. I was like an intern and doing freelance pieces. And the first job, real job I had in magazines was at the economist magazine where I was a little magazine where I was qualified to write about politics. And they said, we want you to write about business. So (laughs) in 1991, I moved to London and the first job I had there was writing about what was the convergence story. It was like, I wrote about media telecoms and computers coming together before the internet. Basically, right. right. All the shit that was going to be <laughs> yes. the big wave. So I started doing that and then I came back and I did politics and then I kind of toggled for a while between doing politics and doing business. Um, you know, I lived in Silicon Valley for a while. My first book was about the Microsoft antitrust trial. What was that called? Pride Before the Fall. Um, mm-hmm. The trials of Bill Gates and the end of the Microsoft era, wow. which was pretty prophetic, yeah, pre- frankly, pre- in like 2001. Yeah. So- I, so I spent, I know a lot, I mean, friends for a reporter, I know a fair amount about the tech business and I wrote, I know a fair amount about the media business, politics eventually kind of tipped the scale and I ended up doing mostly politics, but I do, I did toggle for a while between those things where I was doing business and then politics. And really it took me a long time to figure out, um, my friend Kate Boo at the New Yorker said to me at some point when I was like, man, I'm going back and forth between these things. She said, oh, you're not going back and forth. You're only, you have one subject. Your subject is power. That's all you care about <laughs> right. is power. It's like powerful people. Because I wasn't writing about like, you know, um, Linux. You know, I wasn't right. writing about technology. I was wow. writing about, I was writing about, about, about John Doerr and Scott McNeely and right. Bill Gates. And, you know, I was writing about. You were writing power. about nuts, nuts and bolts. You were writing about the, I was the writing movers. About the, I was writing about the power dynamics inside the tech industry more than I was writing about like code. Right. So, right. I mean, I'm interested in code, but that was not my thing. But so did you, was your family political? Were you raised in a family where there were, there were, all, the conversation was on politics? Not at all. So uh, where did that come? I mean, where that, did the, so where did the interest in power come from? I don't know. I don't, I don't have a good, I don't have a good account for it, honestly. Like, do you, you just know? like to be around powerful people? No, it's just like, I just, I don't know. How do you come to be interested in things? It's not, well, it's really not clear to me. Like, oh, really? No, because people say things like, oh, my dad was really interested in yeah, my dad was so. My dad was an aerospace engineer and, you know, was actually more, I actually understand my interest in solid state electronics from my father more than I understand anything political. My father's really not political. My mother passed away a long time ago and was not political. So they were very, they, they were engineers, you know, and, and I actually, you know, again, I could, I understand why I'm interested, why I, was had some facility with understanding the way engineers talk to each other from my parents more than I understand the political thing. I don't right. really know where that came from. But, that but be- my parents didn't care about rock and roll either, and I gave a sh- I gave a, I gave a I care a lot about that. So. I think that probably has to more to do with them not giving a sh- I mean, probably. Yeah, that's how it is, right? <laughs> you don't you don't like you don't like rock and roll because if you if your parents were into rock and roll, my guess is you'd right. be like a, one of those classical music guys with a right a fucking really sweet sound system. Yeah, I mean, like, why did you become interested in technology? Um, can you give an account of that? How you became interested in, before The Verge and technology culture? Like, well, I think I was naturally a nerdy kid, a weird kid. Uh, I think I was raised in a way that made me more introverted, uh, which made me think focus on things that were small, yeah, and, and that, detailed, and that, and that happened in your head. 
Maybe I don't know. My dad is also a weird sci-fi fan. Like as his, when I was a very young kid, like my dad was into things like um, uh, what is the pyramids of the gods, or what is the or what is the, the book called where it's about how like aliens built the pyramids? Twilight, 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 Chariots of the gods. Chariots, Chariots of the gods. So my dad was really into Chariots of the gods, and like you know, my dad was a my dad. He's still alive, obviously. My dad is a weird guy. He would stop me. Like I remember very vividly when I was like ten or eleven. My dad stopped me. We were walking through the hallway of our house. And my dad stopped me. He's like, you know, I wish I had laser vision. I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, I didn't say what the fuck because I was a 10-year-old or whatever. But he's like, you know, I wish I could just shoot lasers out of my eyes because then if you didn't like somebody, you could just like shoot a laser at them and disintegrate them and that would be the end of it. That'd be a badass superpower. I was like, that's a strange, but you know, but that kind of thinking. It's a weird kind of thing for your dad to say. It's a weird kind of thing for anybody to say in any situation. Anyhow, so I think that probably had something to do with it. Um you know, he was into like bad, weird sci-fi and horror. So I think that probably influenced some of my, I think I come from a long line of weird nerds. Let's put it that way. Okay. You probably come from a long line of, of some kind of nerd. I don't know, man. No. Well, engineers are not exactly normal people. No, they're not. Although, you know, both my parents were from the Midwest. My dad was from Milwaukee and my mom was from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And they were relatively straight. But as I just suggested to you before we started doing this, I'm an adopted child. And I know nothing, literally nothing about my genetic heritage whatsoever. I know nothing about it. So, right. like, I have You've not like, looked into it? I know a lot about the nurture piece of my rare, of my upbringing, but yeah. I know nothing about the about the nature part of my upbringing. How so much do you the, think? So, seriously, who the fuck knows? How much do you think the nature plays a part? Uh, you know, I, I think mean, genetics are pretty powerful, right? If you believe in science, you know, genes are a pretty big deal. Yeah, but they don't think they make you go into politics. No, but. Or covering politics. No, but, you know, we, we know that people's dispositions, you know, whether you're extroverted, introverted, whether you're artistic or not artistic, whether you're um, analytical or non-analytical, those things are, are genetic traits that get carried down from generation to generation. And so again, I just, all I'm saying is like, I have a kind of a one piece of my, of my explanatory framework for who the fuck I am is a blank. You don't want to explore anymore? Uh, dude, I'll talk to you all about. It. I just don't know anything else. No, but I'm saying you don't. You've never looked into it. You've uh, never done genealogy. You've never gone. Your... I, I never have, and I have to say, although I'm, I've been for a while. I was like militantly against it. Like I was really focused. I mean, I had this attitude, which was, I know who my parents are. These are my parents. Right. It felt like it would have been a rejection of the way in which I was raised to like be interested. Now right. that now that I'm like a little bit older, and you know, as I said, my mom died many years ago, thirty years ago. Um, I have a little bit more, like I'm a little bit more tempted, especially now that it's easier. The science makes it a little easier to, to figure that out. I'm a little more tempted than I was ever before, but I'm yeah. still not like running out the door and going to, you know, whatever those, all those various DNA sequencing companies are. You know? <laughs> well, I'm not going to force your hand or anything, but I will tell you that uh, my wife, Laura, is very, very interested in genealogy. Yeah. And I, I've been fascinated just... I'll tell you what I'm. My story's a little different. Can I tell I mean, you what I'm interested in? Yeah, I'm interested in. I dream of genealogy. <laughs> what is that? I don't know. I just made that up. That sounded good. cool. That started. That started. I, I dream of that's genealogy. A, that I dream of genealogy cool, is uh, like a person comes to your house, like a genie. Yeah, and they tell you what's going on. You with know, your there was past. a TV show once that was on called "I Dream of Genie," right? I'm aware of that. Okay. How fucking young do you think I am? I don't know. I mean, I'm flattered. Do you think I'm like a very youthful person? Well, that, you're like I never heard of "I Dream of Genie." Which was also remade in like the 90s, just, late 90s just to be, into a just movie to be, starring Nicole Kidman. Just to be clear, when I look at Is that you, true? You're thinking of Bewitched. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> it's the same, basically. Same idea, right? It's you're, a fucking, like, it's a genie or a witch or whatever. Let's get into it, John. Okay, let's, let's just go. Stop, let's stop the small talk. Let's stop circling What do you want to know? It. Speak to me, Topo. How? 
on a scale of one to ten. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ten being the most. <laughs> ten being the highest. Ten being the yeah. highest, and one being the lowest. One being the, the yeah. least. Yeah. Or the lowest. Yeah. How fucked up is this? Uh, this presidential election cycle for us. I mean, how fucking strange is it? Okay, so how fucked up or how fucking strange? Both. Well, you can answer both separately if you want. I mean, I don't want to be like to go into too like um, non uh, vernacular hip, hipster talk about this. I don't but, know what that means. Well, no one knows what that means. You know, what I'm saying like I guess. Oh man, it's so fucked up. You know, it's okay, you don't have to use. It is, you don't have to use. Um, it is. It is. We are in a. We are in a. In a cycle in a presidential cycle where the wheels are kind of on the verge of coming off the wagon in you don't think on, off the wagon. on both sides uh, you don't think a trump a viable trump republican nomination seems like the wheels are off well i think that the that from the standpoint of the republican party nominating someone who is um as volatile as trump is and someone who is as antithetical to most of the things that the Republican Party that any of us have ever had any experience with in our lifetimes is a pretty scary thing. If I was a Republican and I defined myself around the ideas and the ideologies and the policy preferences that the party has like adhered to for most of the post-war era, I would look at Donald Trump and say, what the fuck are we doing? Like what's happened to my party? You know, that's what I would say. Right. And the phenomenon itself is a very um, – strange thing and unusual and 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 kind of not inexplicable but um but but hard to explain <laughs> right and I, no, I mean I, I, all i mean about that is like the notion that in a in an environment where if the two defining features of american politics in the last 20 years have been um, populism, a populist impulse and strain in both parties that has waxed and waned, but has basically been ascendant for like 20 years. And that polarization where both parties are moving or pushed further to the extremes within themselves. So the conservative Republican Party's got more conservative, the Democratic Party's got more liberal. And do you, do you agree that that's true? Oh, it's unquestionably true. Like, like there is a polarization that yes. is, is pushing in, in either direction. Yes, yeah. yes. Po polarization is the defining feature of our politics, right? For, again, in our lifetime, in the sense that it was, and this is like not just an anecdotal thing, it's an empirical thing. If you look at members of Congress over the life of the country, and you can basically look at them by their votes on issues, and you can assign, and political science, scientists do this, they assign um, numbers, metrics that, that, that can, you can assign, you can determine numerically how liberal or how conservative someone is, right? So for the entirety of the history of the United States until two Congresses ago, there were always Democrats who were more conservative right. than the most liberal Republicans and therefore liberal Republicans who were more conservative than the most Democrat. Right. So you had like, if you looked at the curve, the bell curves, I'm making these, I'm waving yeah. my hands. In if the you can see this, John is actually making large hand motions. But, but what you would, but you, what there was, was in the middle, there was an overlap where people in the Republican party and people in the Democratic party there like deals could occur, things could happen because right. people would compromise. Yes, and or and, lean a little bit one way and, or the other. And the most liberal Republican was more liberal than the most conservative Democrat, right? Yes. So I'm saying to process that. So idea. it's like just so it's like you would have a, you would have Republicans from the from New England who were more liberal than conservative Democrats from the South. Right. It's now the case in the last two Congresses that there's literally for the first time in the history of the country, there's no overlap. So it's it's a it's an empirical way of talking about why 
why the last two Congresses have been the most um, the most ineffective, right. the most unproductive Congresses ever, because there's no overlap. There's no space the, for deal the making. Venn, there is no Venn Right, in the diagram. diagram. Correct. Yeah. It's just two bell curves that are don't yeah. touch each other in any way. So that's- and a, that's, that's I want to so go that's ahead. A, that's a new thing. Yeah. So polarization new and, as of how many years? Well, just that that phenomenon of there being no overlap is a four year old, five year old, six okay. year old. Pretty thing. recent. Yes, very recent. Right. So polarization is the defining feature, and 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 also just that as an empirical thing, and then there's the anecdotal thing, which is that we know that our political lives are defined more by yelling and shouting and screaming at each other than they ever have been before. Right. The Democratic Party is, again, further left. The Republican Party is further right. So that's polarization. And then there's populism, which is this thing that you know about even if you're not interested in politics, which is that more and more people in the country believe that all of the institutions of American life, politics, media, religion, like take your pick, any finance, you know, any big thing that exists in America is to be is not uh, is not to be trusted, and is somehow working at odds with the interests of you and me, right? But and those, a, right, and those a, so so just let me finish this. Yeah, just yeah, say this stuff. So those two things, with the Republican Party going further to the right, and with the populist impulse in America getting larger over the course of the last twenty years, the rise of Donald Trump in the Republican Party as a kind of theoretical notion that someone like Donald Trump could be a dominant figure in a presidential election and that someone like Bernie Sanders could be the domin- a dominant figure in a presidential election right. is not actually inexplicable, right? That That's like in it's, some ways- It's explicable. In some ways predictable. <laughs> right. And in some ways it was predicted. If you go back to 1996 and you think of 1992 and 96 and you think about Ross Perot and Pat Buchanan- you know, Ralph Nader, there were these things that have been happening that kind of presaged where we are now. So that's why I say it's not totally inexplicable. On the other hand, you know, a candidate who combines those things with the celebrity power that Trump has and the fact that he could say not one, but 30 things in the course of a campaign that would kill any politician, would end their candidacies and would drive them out of acceptable, polite (laughs) public society. And that he got stronger on the basis of saying those things. And we could go through them all, but it'd be boring, right? But it's like, you know- Let me go through a few of it. You know, but it's like, I want to ban Muslims from the United States. John McCain's a loser because he got caught. Um, Megyn Kelly's a bitch. bleeding out of wherever. Megyn Kelly's a bitch. Carly Fiorin is a fucking ugly. (laughs) Um, You know, Ted Cruz is a pussy. (laughs) These are all real things that he's basically- of said course, and into very and, widely, and incited violence at your rallies. I yeah. mean, all those things yeah. are things that any one of those things would traditionally, have traditionally, classically, would have been a killer, right? Like so, the Dean scream. This is a Dean scream, but like plus a hundred, plus a thousand. So that's the part that's inexplicable, right? The part of like a like when Trump first got in the race, I would say to our credit, mine and Mark Halpern's like on our show on Bloomberg on with all due respect, to our credit, we said from the very beginning. Not that Trump would do what he's done, but we said from the very beginning, you have to take this guy seriously, and here's why. Because there is now a market in the Republican Party for a nationalist, uh, restrictionist- Xenophobic. Z- uh, mercantilist, you xenophobic. Get, yeah. No, I'll say xenophobic. I okay. mean, all of those things. Xenophobic, mercantilist, nationalist, um, all that, right? There's a market for that. And this guy, because he's has 100% name ID- is regarded by many people in the country as exemplifying wealth and achievement and success. Sure. Uh, it, that he's famous and he's really good on television, that that guy is going to find an audience. Right. Like, how big is it going to be? How robust will it be? Right. Will it be impervious <laughs> to mistakes and criticism? I don't know about that, but you don't don't dismiss this guy. <laughs> right. right, but 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 yeah, but it turns out you can say, don't dismiss him that early on, smart. Yeah, yeah. 
Will he be impervious to criticism? No, that's the part, you could not have predicted no, that part. Of that's it. the part, right. and that's the part that's that's why I say the phenomenon of something like Trump is not inexplicable. Right. The phenomenon of the particulars of Trump is kind of hard to get your fucking head around. I mean, it's just <laughs> right. not it's not really easy right. to understand. So how fucked up is it? You know, the two dominant figures in our politics, you know, over the last year have been the two, are two people that you know it's kind of like wow. Seriously, really? You, you're saying about Trump and, and Sanders. Sanders? Yeah, yeah. Because Sanders is Sanders is not going to be the Democratic nominee. Well, but but no, you're not going to be a Democratic nominee well, under any circumstances. No, he's really not. But but <laughs> well, John. Well, he's really not um, because I know how to do math. No, but but well, I'll, but I'll, but I but well. I was, but he what he has done though is he's done this totally, and I say this with you know uh, with admiration. He was he has dominated the Democratic debate fully. In the sense that it is his, he is the candidate who has enthusiasm of the future of the people who comprise the future of the party. On every policy issue, he has pulled the mainstream, the person who will be the Democratic nominee, has pulled her to the left on every single issue. He right. set the agenda. He's mobilized. He's he, for many, for millions of millennials. He is their first access point to politics and will influence them forever because you are always influenced in a lot of ways by the first candidate you fell in love with, right? Right. He's been the dominant figure and he's changed her campaign for good or bad, unclear, right? He is, she's now right. adopted positions that she did not want to adopt in right. order to try to make sure she didn't get outflanked by him. He's been the dominant story. And he went from being someone who no one in the country knew, yeah, who was a 74-year-old you know, socialist right. from Vermont <laughs> who, who has called the tune throughout the election. So he's been the dominant figure on the Democratic side. Trump's been the dominant figure on the Republican side. That is a, I don't know if you want to call it fucked up or not fucked up. It is a really unexpected it's, development. It's different. Okay, I want to take a quick break. Yeah. And we're going to come back and we're going to go. See, we haven't even talked about anything. We're already like a half an hour into we this. We haven't even scratched the is surface. Is this going to be like, we're doing this for like three hours, right? We very well could. And by the way, people who listen to this podcast, the handful of people. Yeah would be happy to hear a three-hour podcast, I think, on these topics. Awesome. we take a quick break and come back. Can I go smoke a doobie? Uh, yes, if I'm included. Okay. All right, we'll be right back. Let me introduce you to our sponsor, FrontPoint. FrontPoint is a modern home security system backed by the highest rated service in the business. FrontPoint uses 100% cellular equipment, making it one of the hardest security systems to defeat in the industry. FrontPoint uses only wireless equipment, making it simple and easy to set up. And FrontPoint's mobile app even lets you keep tabs on your home from anywhere. I mean, you could be in, uh, you could be in Paris, you could be in London, Dubai, you can configure the app to send text or email alerts when your daughter gets home from school, your daughter or son, uh, or your uh, when your spouse arms the alarm at the end of an evening, you know, so you can know that your spouse is uh, keeping things tight, uh, even while you're away on business. I mean, especially while you're away on business. Let's be honest. You want to know what your spouse is up to when you're out of town. Uh, From Point combines the high-tech security with great customer service and has received more five-star and A-rated customer reviews on sites like Angie's List and Trustpilot than their competitors. Don't be a fool. Go to frontpoint.com slash tomorrow to get your free quote on a FrontPoint system today. You may be eligible for up to $300, 300 US dollars in discounts. That's frontpoint.com slash tomorrow. 
Listen, Mother's Day is quickly approaching, and if you're like me, uh, you can never figure out what to give your mother, let alone where to get it. You know, the thing about Mother's Day is I always forget that it's happening, and then I realize like the day before, I'm like, oh my God, or two days before, I'm like, oh my God, Mother's Day, and I've done nothing. I've gotten no gift. It's, you know, and it's very troubling for everybody, especially for me and for my mother, frankly. Uh, luckily, there's a great new app called Giftagram. Giftagram lets you send anyone a unique and thoughtful gift with only three clicks of your smartphone. Ryan, my new producer, uh, just told me that he used Giftagram to send his mom a gift, and it took him like less than a minute, which seems insane to me, but uh, he's not a liar, so I'm going to have to take him at his word. Look, you simply choose a gift from the curated categories, and you uh, select contact on your phone, and you hit send. The gift goes off to them. And here's the magic. You don't even need a mailing address to send a gift. Giftagram asks the receiver for their preferred address, and the gift is in their hands in three to five business days. I mean, that's amazing. That's insane. You know, that's like magic. I mean, that is like a, a sorcerer comes to your house and is like, I want to, you know, just say who you're going to give a gift to. And he does something with his hand and he's got, a, he's wearing a hat. Maybe he has a long gray beard. And the next thing you know, that person has a gift. This is some Gandalf level stuff we're talking about here. This is a Gandalf scenario that you're going to put yourself into. Uh, the gift selection for uh, your mother is second to none. You can find modern gifts like Bang & Olufsen Bluetooth speakers or more traditional gifts like a three-month flower subscription uh, from the, the Books. I think Books is short for bouquets. I could be wrong. I'm no expert. Uh, you can send one to your mom anywhere in the U.S. or Canada. So Canadians are included, which I think is very nice. So here's the best part. Listeners of tomorrow can get $20 off their first gift on Giftogram. Just download the Giftogram app on your iPhone or Android device and enter the gift code tomorrow. Thank you, Giftogram, for your support. You guys are helping keep tomorrow in business, which is really lovely. And to the listeners of tomorrow, take a look at it. You know, you've got moms. They need gifts. Giftogram is there. They're making life a little easier for you. Just accept it. We're back with John Heilman. Uh, again, author of Game Change and Double Down Game Change 2012. Yeah. Uh, host of With All Due Respect. Yeah. Star of the Circus on Showtime. Yeah. And managing editor of Bloomberg Politics. Last but not least. Um, okay. So we're talking about the fucked up nature of 2016. Yeah. How much... Okay, so, so as you just uh, described, Sanders and Trump have dominated the dialogue. Yeah. And I... Don't disagree at all. I mean, I mean, the reality is that Hillary probably thought she was running a pretty straightforward campaign here on issues that were very germane, that she was very germane to her, very comfortable, very easy for the most part, straight down the line, democratic sort of uh, vibes, right? Yeah. Would you say prior to Bernie? Well, I think that- She wasn't going to say anything radical. Yeah. I mean, look, I think that she- she was very aware from the outset that there was a, she understands the democratic party. Right. And so I think she was pretty aware of the fact that there would be a challenge to her left and that the question was who that would be. So she spent a lot of time. Um, she and her husband spent a lot of time fixated on the notion that Elizabeth Warren was going to run and, and, and did a very aggressive from the moment she got out of the state department, made a pretty aggressive 
and mindful effort to not put herself in a position where she could be outflanked by someone who could catch lightning in a bottle and beat her. I think in retrospect, what, what for whatever it? it's for whatever it's worth, I think in retrospect, you know, the strength of the Sanders, given all of the things that are fucked up about Sanders. I mean, just in terms of like just purely politically, right? All the the weaknesses that he has. If Elizabeth Warren had run against her, she'd be the nominee by now. Oh, Elizabeth know? Warren would be. Yeah, I mean, you, really, you, think, you really believe yes. that? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, good. Who? You, yeah, I'm, I'm being. I mean, a okay, little but, bit. But I mean, a little bit fanciful. But all I'm trying to say is that if if it's true that that what Sanders has done is is spoken to an important and dominant in some ways part of the democratic electorate in a newly more progressive democratic party than there's ever been in our lifetimes before. And you think about the weaknesses he has uh, as a 74 year old socialist from Vermont, et cetera, et cetera. Right? <laughs> right. If you think about a younger, more TV friendly, um, candidate who had the same issue profile, female, who was female yeah. um, and could compete in, on that on those grounds. Right. Or if it, if, I mean, again, just like throwing out names, right? If Cory Booker had run, you know, you can think of a lot of people who might have been someone who could outflank Clinton to the left and be younger right? and be, you know, have other demographic advantages that she has. Well, that or, are, or not have know, the negatives that she has. And which, right, well, right. all of the, yeah, none of them would have, have had any of the baggage she had, right? right? So there was gonna be a populist left challenge to Hillary Clinton. She knew that, she took precautions against it. She left herself the wiggle room to be able to get over to the left where she now is on a lot of issues that she doesn't really want to be as far left as she is. So I think she knew that those things were all coming, but this actual sequence of her campaign was she left the state department. She did a bunch of speeches, which was sort of fucking stupid just on the level you mean of like, like you mean like the speeches to Goldman Sachs. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, like if you're really going to run we for We still don't have the transcripts to those, right? Correct. If we were going to run for president in the Democratic Party in 2016, you unless you were like just engaged in political malpractice, you wouldn't go and give a bunch of speeches to a bunch of bankers. Like right. it's just fucking dumb, right? right. <laughs> so so she did that. Right. And then she started her campaign and like she spent most of 2015 Totally embroiled in the email scandal, right. or not scandal, whatever you want to call that thing. In the email what do you controversy, want to, what do you want to call it? Well, I want to call it a a a flap. Let's call it that. Okay. I mean, the facts. You don't think the, it's important? I think it's important, but I don't think it's. I mean, scandal suggests. Look, she was wildly inappropriate and not um, the things that she did in terms of how she set up her information technology system that she set up a homebrew system for herself that no one has ever done in the history of, of American politics to like in order to, I think Is that true. Most, no one ever not in the way, not to have like a many people, many, many cabinet secretaries have had private emails. I've sure. had private email addresses. No cabinet secretary to my knowledge has ever set up a, a home server and then diverted in a situation where they would be, even if they weren't initiating, where they might be receiving classified information on a home system outside the government system, it's like an unprecedented thing. You can argue about how serious that is, how dangerous it was, how reckless it was, but it was not something that anybody else has ever done before. And what, was and, there, what is the ultimate reasoning behind well, that? Well, nobody really knows the answer to that. I mean, some people believe that she thought there was a way to protect some of her communications from FOIA. By doing that, the Freedom of Information Act. Yes. Um, uh, 
others, you know, no one really believes that it was like for convenience because like, you know. That is like, that is out, it's out of pocket, just dismissed. Yes. I mean, you know, I mean, look, I mean, we all carry multiple devices around yeah. and yeah. and it is it is true her husband had a server set up in the house and for a while she was piggybacking on his server. But broadly speaking, the, the deeper issue here is that the Clintons historically have one of their weaknesses politically is that they have this attitude, which is that like whatever the normal rules are, don't apply to us. And part of the reason they don't apply to us is because we are inherently virtuous. Like we are good people. Mm -hmm. And although we do some sort of skeevy shit by and large, if you net it all out, we're like good for the world. Right. right? (laughs) So is that true or not true? Well, I don't know. That's, that's one of those things that's in the eye of the beholder. Right. I mean, obviously many people feel that it's not true. You're I, the beholder. Uh, well, I don't have a. I don't really have a judge. Not say. I don't. I, no, it's not that I can't is it the say. View from nowhere, John. You don't want you. No, just I want just to be think, wildly I, neutral, and just, purple, no. straight down the line. Oh, you can really just suck my dick. <laughs> okay. Um, All right. No, it's just not that. It's I'd not that. To. I just. I just don't think there's an ant. There's no, not an objective answer to that. And by objective, I just don't mean like you know. It depends on what your priority on, on what your on what your values are. Is it true that the Clinton Foundation has done incredible things all over the world? It is 100% true. Is it true that Bill Clinton's foundation has also been done a lot of unseemly things in terms of its financial arrangements? Yes, that's also true. Right. How does one, I, again, I'm not Can't trying Can you say to, that about the Gates Foundation and lots of other- Yeah, but he's, that wasn't the president of the United States. That's true. Right. right. Good point. And so uh, all I mean is to say that like, I actually, I don't mean that, I mean to say that I- find it hard to evaluate. Um, I can say those two things are true. One of which is without reservation, they've done skeevy things in terms of how they finance <laughs> right. the foundation. Right. I can also say that when Bill Clinton makes claims about like the anti-malarial drugs they've provided and the money they've spent in sub-Saharan Africa, that's all true too. How do you put those on a scale and say right. one outweighs the other? I don't, I really but they, know. But you're I saying they do. Yes, I so think it makes it easier to in, go like you know we're going to piggyback we're going to we're going to do a hop skip and a jump to this yes. server over here I think because that, in the grand scheme of things we're actually doing good in their minds it seems to me over the course of their life in the, in their public life in American in the American history that both of them have that believe very strongly in their own virtue that they're doing that they're in this for the right reasons and that that. It's a complicated world in which certain compromises must be made in order to accomplish good things and that you should basically trust us that in the end, we are in this for the right reasons. And so don't look too carefully at some of the stuff that's uh, kind of on the edges and kind of behind the curtain that we do, right? Right. Just because basically like, hey, guys, we're the good guys. We're the white hats. So, (laughs) so, but let me just try to like stay on the, on the, on this one, on this one point, which is to say she announced that she was running for president and spent six months embroiled in the questions, answers, investigations related to the email server. Right. And it consumed her campaign for six months. And in that period of time, Bernie Sanders announced that he was running. And frankly, I think, you know, for her, she did not spend a lot of time worrying about Bernie Sanders. She was like, Bernie's Bernie's a nut. Right. I need to get, deal with him. Or if not a nut, that he's a nuisance right. more than a, like a mortal threat to my, <laughs> to my nomination. Right. And she worried about other people getting in. And when like she Warren. looked up and when she looked up in October and 
she did the Benghazi hearings and Biden decided not to run. She looked up one day in October and was like, okay, so the person I was really worried about was Joe Biden. He's not running. I went and testified on Capitol Hill at this Ballyhooed hearing on on Benghazi and I knocked it out of the park and the Republicans were totally fucked up and as they always are, totally ill-prepared and didn't like prosecute the hearing well and she sailed through it because she's very, very good in those settings. She's very polished. She looked up and said, okay, what? where am I? I'm, I've got Lincoln Chafee, Martin O'Malley, Jim Webb, and Bernie Sanders are my opponents. This is a pretty good place to be. Right. I've not been indicted. I'm not even close to being indicted. The email thing seems to be on the back burner. There's still some stuff going on here, but it's not, doesn't seem like a mortal threat. These people all seem like dispatchable given my strengths, given my money, given my history, given my historic nature of my candidacy. I'm good to go. This is all going to be fine. (laughs) And then Bernie Sanders, who was all through that period in this unlikely way on the basis of the big historical factors that we talked about earlier populism, polarization, and the crazy kind of way in which all of the shit that made people like me and people in our business dismiss him on some level. And again, I'll say we took him quite seriously and started doing interviews on the show very early, but still like the notion that that unkempt dandruff on the shoulder, right. can't like comb his hair, doesn't have a sense of humor. Yeah, he doesn't like, talk about his he's biography. He's like the uncle in everybody's family that comes to dinner and it's like always wants to get into a political conversation and you're like, ugh, God, Bernie's here. He wants to, he's right. going to argue. And you're going to go and listen to him and what his speech is going to be is not going to be in any way humanizing <laughs> or in any way trying to be, become more accessible. Right. He's going to stand in front of you for an hour and yell at you. He's going to yell at you about <laughs> right. oligarchy and political revolution right. and the 1% and he's going to yell, 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 yell. That... It was easy for savvy people to be like, well, okay, there's like a little bit of a market for that, but yeah. It's like, with, it's, the, like, it's like uh, Occupy Wall Street. They're going to get a rally a little bit, but right. then the reality is going to hit. Well, and the thing we totally underestimated was that there was the market for authenticity. Right. And that, 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 <laughs> and that like that, that in a, that if Hillary Clinton was the front runner, especially for millennials, whose bullshit detectors are very on, they have other huge defects, but one of their great assets is that they're like, their attitude is like, here's old Bernie Mm -hmm. Sanders. Like, here's this guy. He's unkempt. He's not made for TV. He's not in any way a prepackaged candidate. He's not poll tested. This is the shit he's been talking about for 30 years. And he gets up and he gives us a lecture on basically an ideological critique of, you know, everything and he's the fabric, and he, and he's, the fabric he, of the nation. And he's yelling at us through most of it, like in a kind of unpleasant way that that would be like, I love that guy. It's the strangest. That's it is not, fucking the strangest thing. Is it not? That's not normal. So that's what we all missed. And it turned out she missed it, but we, most of us missed it. We all were kind of both caught. Well, I understand why Bernie like could have like a little traction, but you didn't think he was going to outraise her. She was, that he was going to become a huge internet brand, that yeah. he was going to be the one person in the both feel the parties. Burn, feel the burn would work. That, that he's the one person in both parties in this cycle who is a genuine internet phenomenon. Right. He's a meme. There are, you know, the, on Etsy, there are thousands of people making Bernie he's uh, like, silhouette hair. He's like the grumpy cat. He's right. the grumpy cat of politicians. Yes. He is and a fucking, gr- he's grumpy too. Except, except totally grumpy. And, and yet he's raising, because of his strength as an online fundraiser, again, that 
equals and potentially surpasses that of the first great internet fundraiser, Barack Obama, he's has this has extra this extraordinary capacity to again in, the, in a in a, in a it, now in a in a way that is judged by a metric that matters in politics, which is how much money can you raise? Right. Can you be can you be viable? Right. right. He is the guy who figured who became the one most vi- the one genuinely viable and in fact not just viable but extravagantly successful internet fundraising brand like it's not obvious why that would be true but then if you look at it from 30,000 feet now it's like oh it's totally obvious is because it, is it obvious I want to get into this he's the well he's the he's again i think it just goes to authentic it goes you, to do you think his authenticity is the driving factor I think, yes, I do. Do you think there's a reaction to, I'm going to, so the Bernie thing is like just so fertile. There's so much fucking weird shit to think about and talk about. Yeah. But so you, I was, my next question was going to be like, how much is the internet a part of this? But I think you answered it already in saying that Bernie is essentially a creation of the internet that like without the internet, without a vehicle like the internet, there is no Bernie Sanders. There's, there's a, it would be really hard if you if you think about the political fundraising system as it exists, is there's like high dollar and low dollar, right? Okay. One's like wholesale and one's the retail. Coke, there's the Coke brothers. Well, no, I mean, just I just mean just just again, you know, just, just so you have like people who write twenty seven hundred dollar checks and go to big fundraisers, and you have people who contribute five dollars. To a campaign, right? And they the, the, the same the first limit, group are rich people, and the second group are middle not, class or poor people, mostly, right? <laughs> or students, right. you know. Again, people without a lot of money, right? People without a lot of money. Yeah. So, with Bernie, the the problem with low dollar fundraising is that it's really inefficient. It's like there's a lot of money out there with people with like who will write you a ten dollar who give you a ten dollar bill, but it's really hard to find them. And it's really hard to get the money from them, except for the fact that the internet, what the internet's <laughs> done. Small, this one small well, thing. But it's, but it's really, again, politics, Venmo. but politics is, <laughs> politics is behind the curve, right? So what, you know, what, what the internet has done is created a efficient system by which you can raise lots of money from in small, in small, in small packages from a lot of people. And so the, yes, in the sense that if the internet didn't exist, but that's a very if the internet didn't exist, it would be prohibitively difficult for a candidate like Bernie Sanders to raise the amount of money that he's raised. You couldn't do but that's it. That's a very utilitarian answer. What I'm asking is okay, well, I get what you're saying. Like the it's te- a huge thing. The technical nature of the internet allows that we can fund him more easily. Therefore, people who are well, but, who have less money. But you're you're sophisticated enough to understand that the two things are actually not once you have once you're using the internet as a tool to to uh, to gather those checks together in a way that you couldn't do otherwise the one of the key things then is okay so if that's the way in which I'm going to gather it now the, the I'm going to I'm going to accumulate the money the the building of the brand is is kind of central and essential to that, right? right? You're like you are there. It's hard to know chicken egg. It's hard to know what comes oh, first. You don't think you don't think there's a chick. There's a clear chicken and egg here. I think that if I think that if you're going to be a successful internet fundraiser, because what you're trying to do is tap into low dollar, you need to be marketable to the kind of people who are going to be internet donors. But 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 by by his and we could probably argue this back and forth yeah. for fucking hours. But by his very nature, 
by his message, yeah, he wasn't going to be the big money guy, right. and right. and and Hillary couldn't be the small money guy right. because of her message and her background and her nature. So so correct, but I, yes, I guess, there's a mechanism. But the reality is that, that we're he not had saying, to propagate we're, we're not, the message. We're not, we're not, yes, totally. But we're not saying different things. All I'm trying to say is that like, here's the thing. Like, if I mean, it's not like Martin O'Malley. <laughs> Or Sorry. I don't mean to laugh at Martin O'Malley, but Martin O'Malley, Jim Webb, and who was the other one? Lincoln Chafee. A Lincoln Chafee. But it's not like if, if I, like two minutes they were on. But here's they were the, but, in this but, here's, race. but here's the thing you understand though, right? If I took Martin O'Malley, who is a very handsome man, too who, handsome, if you ask maybe, me, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Again, just let me finish this. Sure. So, if you took a very a, a governor of Maryland, two-term governor of Maryland, former mayor of Baltimore. And if you gave him Bernie Sanders' positions and message and you handed him all those things and you said, okay, with this message of anti-Wall Street, anti-big business, attack the oligarchy, et cetera, et cetera, if I gave you all those things, Martin O'Malley, <laughs> would that then translate into, into the kind of fundraising success Bernie Sanders has had? And the answer to the question is no. Right. Because Martin O'Malley's not a f- complete freak. Because Martin O'Malley's <laughs> not... The seventy-four-year-old guy with the dandruff on his, the, on his but that's, so that's the thing that's so fucking. So it's it's a it's it's it is like the things. It's a combination of the right message directed at the right audience with the right character. You know that that old guy, all the stuff that you would say are are liabilities in any traditional right, way, right. which you would have, all which, turn out to be assets in this world with this message aimed at this audience. I mean, look, dude, I have been around the country for now a year, but really intensely in the last like four or five months. And you can't- You've I been can't, on planes like every other day you're on a plane, right? I can't tell you the number of Bernie Sanders rallies I've been to. Yeah. I can't tell you, right? And he is a phenomenon for like college kids. Right. Right? And right. And, and, and a huge part of like it is, it's some combination of, it's not just the message. It's the message and the messenger. Right. And the fact that he is a 74-year-old, you know, ungrumpy, unkempt, yeah. you know, socialist from Vermont. Larry actually, David. He's Larry David. part of why it works. Right. So let me, okay, so let me ask you this. And then I want to talk about Trump because yeah. we've just been, we've spent like 40 minutes now on just talking about Sanders, which yeah. I think is fascinating, by the way, and hearing your take on it. Yeah. Is it a reaction in some way to, we had this like amazingly cool, polished, politician in Barack Obama, who's like, I think you said, but when you said he's a phenomenon, when you just said that, my mind immediately flashed to uh, Obama in yeah. the first, in his first election. Right. And this like wave of holy shit, like it can be different. The candidate can be different literally and figuratively. Right. We have a different future for America coming out of like the Bush, the, the, you know, W era, which was, dark to say the least, I think, in American politics and for American spirit, right? It was like, oh, this guy is going to fucking change the whole conversation. And then we got eight years of, I think, relatively predictable. Now, look, I love Obama. He's got his moments. I think it's hard to disagree that he's, there are moments that are breakthrough, like, holy shit, this person is really different. But also, a lot of the politics were business as usual. It was like, okay, a president in America running the government, trying to like get things passed, trying to move things forward. But you know, the same sort of shit that you bump up against. 
Is Bernie in any way a reaction to that? Where it's Bernie like Bernie or Trump? Bernie. Well, I'm going to get to Trump in a okay. second, but this is my final thing on Bernie. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, I'm a Democrat. I there's this young, super polished, unbelievably smart, engaging, like lovable new president, and he's like kind of the same president we've always had. Is is it? I feel like millennials who were raised in the era of. I don't want to put words in your mouth at all. I'm just, this is me riffing you, here. You, dude, you can speak. Millennials you who, have are, a theory. who are raised in the era Express of it. Obama, yeah. that where he was supposed to be this fucking like ray of light that just like fixed America are kind of like, okay, fine. Get a fucking old guy in here who's been around the bent, who is just like sane, mm. who just seems like basically unhinged. I don't think that's, I don't think it's that. I don't think it's that. Here's what I think. I think that it's right. more, it's, no, no, but you're, you're not like a hundred miles away from something that's right. I just think it's like, Thank it's you. more, it's more that I think, I think it's more, not about the old guy thing. It's more that for, if you're, um, if you either voted for Obama in 12 or maybe you cast your first vote in eight, maybe, or maybe this aware is, of or it maybe you haven't voted for either one of them, but you've been growing up in Obama's America. Yeah. Obama was supposed to be transformational. That's what like people believed right. when he first came in. And th there are areas in which Obama has achieved a great deal. You know, n n you can say what I'm about to say without in any way uh, trash talking the Affordable Care Act or um, the, you know, Dodd-Frank or the Game. improvement of America's image around the world after W, right? You gay can marriage. say all those things. Gay marriage. gay marriage, yes, right? Although, again, in some of these cases, like gay marriage is one of those things that, you know, whether Obama- Inevitable. Yes, and, right. you know, Barack Obama was not for gay marriage until 2012. I mean, you know, so- um, Was he against it? Well, he was publicly not for it. I mean, privately he was for it, but he was publicly, his public posture was that, you know, he, that he was not- in favor of it. So here's my point. My point is just that in, in many respects that I think for some young voters, many, many, many young voters, that the promise of a transformational presidency, that you got to the end of like where you are with Obama right now. And it, again, it doesn't like do, it's, it's not, to, you're not trashing Obama to say this, but that it seemed like kind of like like a liberal conventional presidency. And it didn't like transform <laughs> right. America. Right. Is race relations like radically better eight years later? No. No. Is, is, the power, is, is the power of Wall Street diminished in a significant way? No. Is the job market wildly better? Well, is it wildly better than at the depths of the economic, uh, the near the near Great Depression that we right. repeated? Right. It's yes. Better. It's better. much better than it was in January of 2009. No question. But, you know, average wages are not rising that fast. The unemployment rate is down, but you know, the opportunity is not, it's like, it's, it's not, it, it was, it was a presidency. It's incremental. It was a presidency that has been, many people will say, if you're a Democrat, you'll look at Obama's presidency and say, it was historic, much was accomplished, but I think for some large subset of democratic voters, it was still n not transformational. And what they hear in Bernie Sanders is not an old, it's, it's a, the old guy thing is part of the brand. But really, if you go and listen to what Sanders says, is he's saying things Obama could never say, never did say, never would say. And we're going to break up big he's, banks. He's saying, you know, America's a fucking oligarchy. 
we need a fucking revolution. Yeah. He's saying he, the word revolution. And, he, and, he yes, and socialism. Every day. Right. He doesn't really say socialism much. But what he does say is socialist. But says, what he does say is revolution. And he couches it by saying political revolution because he wants to stay away from the notion of like guns in the street, right? right. But every speech is about there's an oligarchy, there's a billionaire class that the oligarchy and the billionaire class that run America are fundamentally antithetical to the interests of ordinary Americans, the middle class, the students, the poor, the working poor. But he's all right. People, is he right? And he's saying he's all fucking the, right. He's and fucking he's right. Saying all that Will you admit stuff, it? And he's saying all that stuff. You want to admit it? He's saying all that stuff, and he's saying what we need is a political revolution. But do you agree and or disagree for, with his base, that basic for, premise? Is there oligarchy? Is there? Is it? Is is oh, is Washington I'm, ruled by by billionaires and lobbyists and corpor- corporations? It's a really. It's a, it's a, the question is like not sufficiently focused to answer in a meaningful way. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> you don't think? Do I think? Do I think the country is run by the one percent? Yes. Okay. Obviously, the answer right. to that question is yes. Sure, it should be run by the one percent. Well, it? it's it is what again. Uh, the one percent of thinkers. the critique. The critique of. The critique of the fact that like super that there's been this huge um, acceleration in income inequality and that the people who are at the top of the income spectrum spectrum who are super, super rich have way too much power, not over Washington per se, although yes, they do over Washington. Right. But actually more importantly, Washington's like relatively. But Washington's limited. like almost it's an like, afterthought by comparison yes, to the rest of the control point. they have. That's yeah. my point. That's yeah. my point. My point is not like it's not the the point isn't hey, man, there's the 1% and the 1% runs Washington. Yes, the 1% has an outsized influence on Washington. But more importantly, like the 1% has a pervasive control over like a large, like a vast, like how do we live in New York City here where we live? We don't. You know, who has power? <laughs> who like... It's it's a bigger thing than Washington and right. lobbyists. Right. Yes, but but Washington but, lobbyists are but, really powerful. But, de, but whatever, but deregulation and acquiescing to their interests and demands leads to the kind of control that you're talking about writ large, right? I mean, the thing that you're saying is like, oh yeah, it's not just about politics; it's all these other things. It's everything. But, but if we if we acquiesce and if we cede power in government or regulatory power then we're giving them the tools to be much more powerful. Much yes. More I guess all I mean is that I think Washington is a very, it's kind of complicated. It's like a, it's a weirdly <laughs> go on. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, there's a, you know, the way in which, the way in which the 1% exercise power in Washington is mostly by stopping shit from happening. Mostly. Yeah. Shit that would be beneficial to regular Americans. In some cases, yeah. And in some cases, not. But yes. I'm <sighs> okay. not, again, I'm not trying to be a pussy about it. I'm no, just trying no. to say, look, I get it. Do I think that Bernie Sanders's critique has a lot of validity to it? Yes, I do. Yeah. You're and a Bernie bro. You're basically a Bernie bro. I'm really not. In many ways. The biggest problem with Bernie's <laughs> critique is that Bernie doesn't have a solution. He's got a- no, He's, he's got like, a, we got to do this. He's but... got a critique, but he doesn't have a remedy. <laughs> yeah. So- Well, it's fucking hard, you know? It is hard. It is hard. So just, again, being analytical about it, I think you've got um, a lot of- You're asking- you're, I'm trying to answer your original question, which was- what was I that? think that the <laughs> so that's, a great, remember. that's a great fucking question. Oh. Your your question was, is the is the phenomenon of Sanders and the phenomenon of left populism that's kind of like the animating uh governing ethos of what's happening on the Democratic side, 
is it partly in reaction to a sense among many Democrats and certainly younger Democrats that Obama was not transformational yeah. and that Obama did not that, – that he made incremental progress and that it was real and substantial but that he was not a transformational figure in the Democratic Party or in the country? Yeah. I believe that the answer to that question is yes. Oh. That, that part of that is like that's what that comes from. Getting back to my point. Yes, I'm getting back to your I'm point. basically right is what you're saying. Incredible. I know you love that when somebody tells you you're sort I of- I do. I have to them. say it is deeply satisfying to me on several levels. Okay. So you want to talk about Trump now, right? Yeah, we have to. I mean- Can we talk about his hand size? Well, I got to tell you, I'm voting for Trump. Okay. I'm a Republican, hardcore, lifelong Republican. You don't know okay. that about me. And I am casting my vote for the best, most viable, and most interesting Republican candidate in years, yeah. Donald J. Trump, who is a fucking great American- and a beautiful man. Donald J. Trump, billionaire. And, uh, he owns a mansion and a yacht. <laughs> he really does. Yeah. No, Trump is a piece of shit. And I just want to say something. It's not a piece of shit because of his ideology, which is bullshit and theater. He doesn't have ideology. He is an entertainer. He's the best entertainer. I think you will. You might not agree to this because like, you've got to deal with Trump all the time. You've got to like do interviews with him. But he's a great entertainer in that he says, like, what is right at the time? And he can move very quickly past that and erase it essentially from like the public discourse, which is a modern capability. Yeah. I don't think that he's actually a Republican at the core. I don't think he's like, I think he may be fiscally conservative because he's a billionaire and all billionaires are fiscally conservative. You don't meet a lot of them who are like, I wish I had higher taxes. Some, but not many. Right. Socially, I think he's pro-life, uh, not pro-life, he's probably pro-choice, really. I think he probably doesn't care about immigrants because he employs a lot of them. A lot of them. He probably doesn't care about trade going overseas because he uses a lot of overseas trade to make his ties and jackets and other bullshit that Trump incorporated makes. Yeah. Uh, and I think that he just saw an opportunity, which is like a broken party. This is me. I don't fucking know. I'm no expert. I'm just some guy from Pittsburgh. But I think he saw. Pitt- are you from Pittsburgh? I am. Really? I think he saw. You didn't know that? No. Really? Oh my god! You didn't know that? Just explain so much. I think he saw an opportunity, and he was like, "These bozos don't know what the fuck they're doing," and I have a lot of money, and I'll just step in and see what happens. Yeah. And he has been seeing what happens up to the nomination. Now you tell me how wrong I am about that, and then we can talk about hands. There's no question that Trump saw a market opportunity in the Republican Party for a certain kind of politician. If you go back and look at like where Trump was historically on a wide variety of issues, the things that you're saying about his many of his positions, you know, abortion's a really good example, right? I mean, not that long ago he was not just pro-choice but was like for partial birth abortion publicly. Vehemently. Vehemently. So not for it, but like it was tolerated. He wasn't like, please go get a partial birth. Right. Yeah. So, you know, and he's, if you think about, I just always try to think about all these people in the context of the world that they live in and come from. You think about Trump's life as a Manhattanite, you know, real estate developer, mogul, married multiple times, goes on Howard Stern all the time and talks about his sexual conquests, um, you know, flies around in a private jet, you know, all that stuff. Talks about how hot his daughter is. Right. Uh, Yeah. On a a regular basis. So all of that. You know, would suggest that it's hard to imagine that Trump is a social conservative. You know that his claims to being pro-life 
um, and some of his other claims, you know, uh, that those are anything but cynical, you know. I mean, again, I don't know what's in the guy's heart, but, you know, the circumstantial evidence is strong that he's saying some things that are, <laughs> yeah. he's saying some things that are, that are not necessarily fully what he believes. I think the economic stuff, if you go back again, historically, you know, his, the stuff he says now about the Chinese, he was saying about the Japanese 20 years ago. You know, there is, there is, as you know, you know, we've had these panics about, you know, when it was, when Sony got bought, when Sony, you know, came and bought Columbia Pictures, there was that whole freak out about, you know, Japan's taking over America. Right. You know, now there's more of a like China's taking over America thing. I mean, even and, in New York, you hear about this every 10 years, there's like a, right. they're buying all the skyscrapers. Right. Yeah. Yes. And that's like a, you know, that's a, a, a cyclical thing. And there are business people in the world who believe those things. I mean, again, I think it's sort of nuts for the mercantilist kind of view of how trade works is kind of crazy. But there are. But I believe he, I think he's sincere about that. No, like I when agree he talk, with you. When he talks but I about said fiscal on the fiscal no, side, no, of I, I know. But I'm just saying. Look, I mean, I think there's just a mix of things. I think Trump has like adopted certain policies and postures that are like totally craven. Like that he doesn't really believe. Right. And I think there are others that he really genuinely does believe. And it's the admixture of those things that makes him, you know, that has, has worked for him so far. Do I think he thinks that immigration is a really huge problem? I mean, again, I just on the basis of like of what my intuition and my sense of spend, having spent a fair amount of time with him tells me is that he thinks immigration is a real problem. Does he really think he's going to build like a big, giant, beautiful wall on the Mexican border? I can't believe he's I mean, too the, smart to think that that's The wall real. is like a kind of weird, it's like a fantasy. It's like a yeah. child's fantasy, right? Yeah. When we talk about things like the wall, yes. you might as well be describing like we're going to build a ladder to space. Yes. Right? Which people talk about. I'd love to have a ladder. There are plans like, oh, we could build a space ladder. And they may at some point. But like if you and I talk about it or if Donald Trump talks about a ladder to space, right. we're not really – we don't it's really mean we'll be, build it's, a fucking it's ladder. Entirely, it's very difficult. You're going to climb up and you're going to be in the fucking stratosphere. And then, is, oh, you're in space. It is difficult to believe that Donald Trump, given his intelligence, thinks that like there's some chance that he's going to build a giant it's wall. It's only going to cost Mexican 11 border. billion. It's only going to cost 11 billion. And that billion. the Mexican government is going to pay for it. Well, and it's then hard. every time the Mexican – every time the uh, every time the Mexican president says something he doesn't like, he says – uh, maybe I'll make it a few feet higher because that's like sounds so I mean infantile right, right. can we just say that so w what we can say is that it's worked for him pretty well and you know there are things that I think he's more again like most politicians there's there are a range of things in Trump's policy vernacular uh, portfolio <laughs> That are like things that he really, really believes in and things that he's being more or less cynical about. Right, like it he, just happens that the things that he's really cynical about seem to be things that are like they're more extravagantly cartoonish in some ways than the things that a lot of other politicians adopt as a purely as a matter of political um, expedience. <laughs> For instance. Well, like the like the wall, right? I mean, right. That's, there's you just made the whole analogy at great length about like the yeah. ladder to space. Yeah. I'm saying like I don't really think that there's any serious person who thinks in the Republican or Democratic Party who thinks there's any chance that at any time in our lifetimes there's going to be a giant, beautiful, no, gorgeous, I mean, gilt-edged wall I mean, along the Mexican is, border. So, but isn't yes. this fucking crazy to you? 
you cover this. Don't you seek, aren't you desirous of sanity in the world, in our society that we can go, hey, you know what, everybody? But people do that all the Let's time. Stop this fucking bullshit with the wall. We're not building a fucking wall. No one's building the wall. But we, Trump but, but, or what, Hillary what, or anybody. But what world do you live in where that's not said all the time? I mean, I'm not in, we're not in Avatar. Like, why don't we just say things that are real? I think this is actually what- But what this we, is, but, but, but Josh, but- there, I read media. You read media. Sure. Like, like, do you think there's an absence of people calling bullshit on the wall? I've only I've read two hundred articles, well, and there have been two hundred people on television who've said the wall is bullshit. Does it's Hillary like, say it? It's does not Hillary, like does Bernie say it? Yes, of course. <laughs> okay. They say it all so the time. Why, are, why does our populace not understand that it's a bullshit idea? Okay. <laughs> why do we? Why are people like, yeah, he's going to build the fucking wall? Why are people how they are? I don't, I don't know. know. That's what dude. I want to get to the bottom. I That's understand. what we could figure out on this podcast. Was I can't help. Can you we with get that. to? Okay, but can we? So getting back to Trump, I can't help you with that. So you're saying I get it. He believes some things. He doesn't believe other things. Which it's like every politician, they're going to say some shit for the public and they're going to do some shit because they really believe it. Do we agree? Yes. Okay. Trump. So you're like, oh, you hate Trump at the beginning of this part of the conversation. I said this. You're saying you hate Trump and you said this to me. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, to be clear, what I said was, I'm sure you really hate Trump yeah. and you're about to like trash Trump. So go, please be my guest. So <laughs> you're more than welcome to. So here's, Many why, people here's do. why I dislike Trump. Here's Again, why, it's not like, this, you, it's not like in the marketplace of ideas. This is an underrepresented point of view. Can I tell you but why? Please I just, go ahead. I'm going to tell you why I personally dislike yeah. Trump and you can tell me whether or not you think it's a valid reason to dislike him or I not. I can already tell you. I think it's valid. <laughs> well, then I think we can just move on to the cre- to the end to the I'm end just, of this podcast, I just, I just, I think people have every right to have the views they have. No, but man. listen, but here's you're a the smart thing. guy. Jesus. I'm sure your views wow. are valid. You really did toke at some point during this. I missed the moment, but here's here's my thing. Um, yeah. Trump thinks that this process is bull. Is seems to think that it's a that it's some kind of theater. That it's that and it is theater, no question. And I think the circus shows that, and Game Change shows that. You've been involved in like, I think particularly in the last um, ten years, let's say of pointing out how much theater there is in politics it's hugely dramatic for no reason other than the drama of it and obviously the power you gain through that use of drama the correct use of drama but the the theater that trump creates in this country and i think it's difficult to deny this is happening right now that the theater he's creating is violent is reductive is uh xenophobic hateful um, and de- ultimately damaging. Uh, you say this about McCain and I mean, Sarah Palin to, certain, to a certain degree, she wasn't, I mean, certainly you guys covered this extensively. <laughs> I just, I wish I could, I wish I had a video of what John is doing in the <laughs> studio right now. He looks like he's about to fall asleep on the microphone, no, which is no, I'm just, very I'm, difficult I'm, for me to make my no, long-winded just, point. I'm just massaging the microphone. I think it's very, but what fucking bugs me about Trump? To be sexy for you. Besides Josh. the fact that I think that he's sort of like sexy, that he's like. Sexy for you. <laughs> besides the fact that I think he's just kind of joking with okay, all of so, this. Hold on. Is that is that is that he makes America? Yeah. A, a less smart less sensitive, less meaningful, less intelligent um, country. I mean, his rhetoric is fucking backwards. It is it is us 50 years ago, 100 years ago. It is us from our worst moments. The shit that he thinks is light and like a way to move his demographic outwardly is damaging, highly damaging, 
and progressively damaging to like what we have built over hundreds and hundreds of years in this country. We're not, we're a pretty fucking new country, but we've worked really hard to build some things that are uh, valuable, you know? Yeah. Civil rights is yeah. something that is valuable here. Yeah. And I think that his rhetoric, whether he believes it or not, chips away at some of the fundamentals of like the progressive, and I don't mean progressive in the political sense, I mean progressive in the, in the human and social sense, the progressiveness of America. And I think like whoever you are, I may agree with some of his fiscal, his fiscal ideas and his ideas about trade, and not all of them, but some of them potentially. But the xenophobia and the hate is damaging to this country on levels that I don't think we can like calculate at this point. And so, yeah, I mean, I have a fucking problem with it. So that's my complaint about Trump. Feel free to respond in any way that you'd, that you'd like. <laughs> Knowing that Trump is a great, great friend of yours, and you've got to interview him definitely in this cycle. No, I just, no, I'm, I'm, I've interviewed him many times, and I will interview him again. I think because, you know, he's really interesting, <laughs> and it's my job. He is really interesting. So it's a little bit fucked up to identify the problem to the extent that there's a problem with Trump as being Trump, right? In, in the sense that the stuff that Trump is saying is only powerful because there is a market for it. And just like Hitler. Well, <laughs> you know, there's always a market for bullshit. Yes. There's always a market this, for, there's this, always but, a market for hate. But the, the, but this, it's, my, but this, it's, Ameri- it's the American, it's the American way to fucking rise above that shit. Yes, and 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 when and when look if your view is that like there's there's much that Trump says that I object to at like a human level, and I say it on television all the time. You know, I'm perfectly happy when Trump called for a Muslim ban. You know, I said it was dangerous and wrong. When Trump has incited violence in his rallies, I've said the same thing. You know, uh, about McCain, about a million things. Like, I don't have any hesitance about calling out Trump when he says something like that I regard as um, uh, capitalizing on on people's sense of anxiety and fear and grievance rather than being uplifting or inspirational or unifying. All those <laughs> things are like are like we we again. I don't think I'm particularly noble. I think like many people do it. If you watch cable television for a while, you'll find many people right. on television. Chris Hayes, Chris Hayes will bust you'll that find, out. But no you'll problem. find many people on television criticizing Donald Trump all the time. That's not right. like particularly bold. <laughs> no. I mean the the you know and the things you said, all of which are things I've heard in other places. And again, I'm not trying to trivialize what you're saying no, and no, saying no, it's not okay. original. I'm just trying to say like there's a thriving market in in liberal views. Do you think I'm liberal? Well, when it comes to Trump, yeah, you're they're kind of a caricature of, yeah, of being liberal. Being liberal around Trump is like being, you know. Again, though, I'm just can I can I try to? I know yes. you had like a long time to make your 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 relatively incoherent rambling point about Trump. Let me just try to say what I'm going to say. <laughs> yes. So here's what I'm trying to say: the Republican Party has a problem. The problem isn't Donald Trump. The problem is the fact that that there's a giant marketplace for many of the most retrograde and divisive and fear-mongering elements of the Trump platform. But if tr- if it wasn't Trump, it'd be somebody else. If that, if the, the things that you find most troubling about Trump as a, as a figure of division and a figure of fear-mongering and a figure of xenophobia 
and so on, if those turn out to be a minority view in the country broadly and a minority and, and, and not even possibly not even a majority view within the Republican Party, I look at that and say, well, I already knew there were people who had those views in the Republican Party. And Trump gave a very vivid, very television friendly, very charismatic voice to those things. But right. who's what where is the problem there? And that is we're talking about in another context, we were talking about chickens and eggs. You know, the Republican Party has been, you know, it, a large segment of the Republican base has been drifting in this direction now for a decade. Right. And so Trump is like the perfect distillation of a set of views that have become very familiar and very much the common currency of a large part of the Republican he's base. He's voicing. So he's a, he's very, he's very big, potent, TV friendly, um, charismatic version of that, that distills all of that into one big, body right <laughs> and it's like you you see all that and you say okay so that's trump right that's you know like, do you think but you think it's a I, he's a symptom of the republican yes a I certain think, segment of the republican I don't think party trump i don't think trump is calling i don't think trump is like the cause right right this is kind of a question of cause versus symptom and right. you know again i'm not the first person to say this by any means i just think like you know the there's a to the extent that if you want to criticize trump for being cynical and saying that he recognized that there were positions he could take in the Republican Party that he could capitalize on and make himself a credible political figure. If you're going to take that posture, which I think is a reasonable posture, that actually implicitly in that argument is to say that those views already existed in the party. He didn't create them. He's, he didn't, he didn't, just nurturing, he's just he nurturing. Didn't, he didn't gin them up. He just he, – he, he became the lightning rod. Yes, and he, and he pinpointed them. And gave them voice in a more compelling way than anyone else had done up to this point. So let me, okay. And I, by the way, I think that is a completely reasonable and very, very, I mean, a much more reasonable take than mine. Okay. Well, I don't Let's actually think say, our ta- I actually don't think our takes are that different. Well, but, like, but your, but yes, you but your can, context you, is is, is someone, more. You, know, look, you look at someone like you know, if you go back and look at George Wallace, or you look at various figures. You know, you can hold them responsible for things. Like I think you know, if Donald Trump goes into his fucking rallies and talks about like how people should be taken out on stretchers, like you have to fucking like call that person out and say that's inciting violence at your rally. That's fucking unacceptable in America. Don't do that. Right. And that's fine. You should. Are say you that. saying that? Are you saying that? Yes, I've said it before, and I'll okay. say it again. I'll say it now. Yes, no, the, the political but inciting violence at political rallies is a bad idea. Don't but do but that. Donald Trump doesn't. Don't, he doesn't cop to that. Shit. Don't do that. He doesn't cop to it. He's not no, like, yeah, you're I right. You know really, what I shouldn't have said. But I don't really care whether he cops. But I'm or saying, not. but like that matters too, right? Yes, I agree. So right. I think it's irresponsible. I think it's like it's not okay, and I think he should be called out on it, and he should be, and I have, and I will continue to. But my only point is like you can you can both call him out for that, and recognize that. He is not like the wellspring right. of the things that surround that, him. Does that exist? And he he is... can either ameliorate it or he can exacerbate it. It's not okay for him to exacerbate it. And we should be normative in our world and say when someone stands up in front of a in, in front of a, a rally and says, you know, I long for the good old days when people like that would have been taken out on stretchers as a result of someone who's like, you know, doing in the best political tradition of America, standing up and offering dissent at a rally. That's not okay. That's, you know, that should be called out. That should be criticized. That should be like all that stuff. And I'm happy to do it here or in other forums that I speak, but it's not, but by calling him out, 
you also need to recognize the fact that the reason why it's powerful is that the impulses are already there and that the people who are showing up at those rallies are showing up there for a reason because they have views that they've come to along before Donald Trump was a presidential candidate. Right, which brings me to probably not the final in our lifetime of having this conversation, but maybe the final topic of this yeah. show. Yeah. Because this is, fa- by the way, I just want to say fascinating you're gonna, to you're hear you. have to edit this shit. Mm, Ryan, what do you think? I mean, I'm going to have to edit it. Not <laughs> yeah, it's it's your, there's a lot of, but there's a lot of interesting shit here. But like this to me. Let's point out that John has a drill. Uh, what is, what is. <laughs> I have to edit that. That, batter, that battery's going to die. Don't, don't edit That's good stuff. That's high quality. But here's what's interesting. Like, here's what I want to know. Um, okay. What do you want to know? We have this thing in America, which I find so bizarre. Uh, this binary idea of belief systems that if I am pro-choice, I'm also, you know, more likely to give to the needy financially and uh, tax tax the rich higher and all these things that go the the liberal or democratic set of things that I believe in, right? Versus the the Republican, and as you said, very at the beginning we're increasingly polarized in these beliefs, right? These belief sets are becoming increasingly, and by the way, correct me if I'm wrong in saying this or interpreting what you said, we're increasingly extreme. Is that, would you say that's true? Well, I, I was actually trying to say something a little bit more precise than that, which is the, the, parties. The, Dem- that the Democratic and Republican parties have moved further along the, ideological spectrum so the republican party is now more conservative than it was yes. and the democratic yes. party is now more more liberal than it okay was. Yeah. so right that, that doesn't that doesn't actually parties ex- are more extreme that doesn't that but, but it's a crucial dis- distinction because there are a lot of data that suggests that the country hasn't really changed very much at all so and that our politics are part of what's so fucked up about our about our american life uh, in the area of governance and politics is that the parties and particularly in washington but elsewhere is that the parties are much more polarized than the country is. And the country is basically a center-right, center-left country, but that their representation in the political sphere is much more polarized, which actually is a whole other topic that we could spend a long time right. on. I don't, spend, I don't want to spend another whole but podcast what's your, but what's, on this. But what, what I'm, you, I'm what fucking you, asking, what, are you, what are you asking? Can we get to a place where we're actually, where we're actually more nuanced in our... In our, in our politics, where I don't have to choose between a Bernie Sanders or a Donald Trump, where I can choose like a a, a politician who is like actually speaks to the relatively middle or reasonable um, concerns and needs of the populace, right? Because I feel like we're in a place where I could never imagine there's not a single Republican candidate, not one of them, as a person who is typically sort of liberal and Democrat, that I could even consider. Right, a little bit. Right, and I believe that there is actually there are a lot of places where where a Republican candidate could be not strictly like along fucking party lines and still be a good Republican. So I guess what I'm saying is like, in your opinion, is there is there what is the inevitable end of this thing? Are we just getting going more and more extreme until we're like an all out civil war, or is there some sanity that can come back to these? Do we need two fucking parties? You, I don't know. I'm. What I'm asking is, does it always have to be this stupid? <laughs> That's what I'm fucking asking. Yeah. Because it seems incredibly. I'm sorry. I know that this is your game, 
So you got, you and you, you're does. like you're fucking on it. You're surfing a wave. You're on your fucking longboard and surfing some wave of politics that is very entertaining and enjoyable to you. And like you can play around with these like the the idiosyncrasies of these candidates and their extremes. But to the, like regular human beings, it's like when the fuck is this going to stop? Because it seems like it's only getting worse. Right. It doesn't seem like it's getting better. Right. So help me out. Or well, we can just we can just call it. No, I mean, first of all. Like, I'll just say because of your, like, because of your extraordinarily like condescending assholic attitude towards like what I'm doing. I'm not um, condescending. You really, to, are, you really, you really are. Actually. No, I'm just saying actually, that. Like, yeah, I know just, this just, is... just stop, just stop, 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 stop. <laughs> Amazingly, <laughs> are you joking on your high again? Can we get him, Ryan? Can we get this man some water? Amazingly. My attitude is that not that I'm surfing a fucking long border on people's idiosyncrasies and all that bullshit you just said. <laughs> My attitude is like, is that I'm, is that as a, is that as a journalist, that I'm really interested in the human beings who are like likely to be the president of the United States, you know, and I, I don't choose them and the system, the pro, the party process is what it is, but as someone who actually is involved in the telling of stories about, you know, the human beings who are ostensibly the most powerful people on the planet, like I'm interested in like what makes them tick, who they are, what's good about them, what's admirable about them, what's deplorable about them. And like trying to convey that in some way is what I actually think I'm doing and not like surfing the longboard along the idiosyncrasies, <laughs> whatever the fuck that I didn't is. Really mean it like, I meant it like I get, I get the, I you, get, you I get, see more nuance than like I do. Well, Yes, I oh God, I hope so. I think so. I hope so. I think so. So, just like I see more nuance if I, we want to talk about smartphones right now. I could so, probably. so that's so that's you know what I think I'm doing. You know, I I'm very appreciative of the notion that people are frustrated with the thing that I actually was really interestingly talking about a second ago, which is that like I think a lot of people are frustrated with the choices they have. I think that. It's hard for me to be predictive about what's going to happen, you know. A, the the uh, whether we're going to get to a place that will be more satisfying to you, you know, whether there are black politicians <laughs> to, that you will me, like that you will personally. like more. But I well, look, I mean, I think you, what you would find a satisfying, nuanced, um, a, a politician that would align with your views is not necessarily a politician that would align with the views of. You know, a lot of other Americans who are equally frustrated with the system as it currently, like there are ways of being frustrated with the system, what, what it coughs up. There will be many Americans who find if we end up with a Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton general election, there will be millions of Americans who find that really un, the unsatisfying. Yes. That will, that think I really don't like either one of those people and I don't really want to, I can't affirmatively vote for either one of them. So why can't we get a third party in there? Well, we, we, I, I, uh, Again, the t very long conversation about why. We, I mean, again, you're asking me like to kind of design a system. If I was God, I could like redesign the whole American electoral system in a way that pleased me. But, but, but the bottom. You're God like though, John. But all I'm trying to say is that among the many millions of people who would find a Clinton-Trump general election unsatisfying, there will be many millions who find it unsatisfying in a different way than you find it unsatisfying. You, you have an idea of what kind of a candidate you would like. Again, totally valid that you have that view. But there are also a lot of other people who are equally unsatisfied with the current choices, but who would like a totally different kind of candidate than the one you would like. So it's, you know, it's 350 million people in the country, and there's a vast diversity of views. I, I, I would like there to be 
you know, in some idealized system, it would be, you know, nice if the candidates that we had to choose from represented a greater diversity of views and were more aligned with more people than this, you know, I mean, we have two, like just as a piece of data, right? The two likeliest nominees in the party right now are wildly unpopular with like vast numbers of people in the country. Right. Like Hillary Clinton. Including their own base. Hillary, Hillary, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are are the two most, of all the candidates that are in the race right now and of all the candidates probably that have ever been in the race are like the two most unpopular people in the country. You know, they have like, you know, disapproval ratings of like 60% and approval ratings of like 40%. They're like way underwater with most people. It seems like a totally nuts thing that that could be right, that the people who won their party's nominations are widely disliked by Americans, generally speaking. That seems like a pretty dysfunctional system. I don't disagree with that. I have no idea how to design a better system so that but we end up in a better place. Other countries have multiple parties. Many other countries do, but we are who we are. I mean, I, I don't but mean that to be like our whole system is set up to be binary. It it is, but you know, look, I mean, a lot of these phenomena. There's you know, there's far right parties in France. There's Jeremy Corbyn in Britain. There's like you know, there's a there's some of the same kind of trends are happening in other Western democracies that are happening here. I I, I don't know how to make a better system, but I will say that. The, la- the current president of the United States who won election not that long ago, right? When he first won in 2008. Barack Obama. Barack Obama in 2008 was someone that many, many, many tens of millions of people in the country thought was you know, a great historic advance that they were really proud to vote for, that they came out for with a great degree of enthusiasm and a great degree of hope when they voted for him. Right. And that was the last president. He's still in office and he still is hugely popular. I mean, you know, uh, among Democrats, you know, he said 85% approval rating and he's not someone who, again, Republicans hate him. Many Democrats really like him, but it wasn't like a lot of people in 2008 when he first got voted in. You knew people, and maybe even you were one of them, who voted for him not because he was the lesser of two evils, but because you thought he was actually like – you were actually like psyched to go to the ballot box and vote for him, Mm. right? I mean, again, I don't know if that's true of you, but it was true. I voted for McCain, so – Did you really? No, of course not. That's absurd. Right. So (laughs) – but you see what I'm saying. I would not vote for somebody who would put Sarah Palin in any seat of office. But but you see what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that like (laughs) – the guy who's currently in office was someone who yeah. millions of people were really satisfied with. Yeah. I mean, you could, you could, I, 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 it's not about satisfaction. It's just about the divisiveness. It's just about like getting to a place where we are able to talk about things in terms of less in terms of black and white and more in terms of shades of gray. Yes. I 50, would, 50 if possible. The problem with you, Josh, is 50 that very sexy is, shades is, of is gray. Is that you're too smart. Yes. That's the thing. No, I don't think that's the problem. No, that's the problem. Is that you're so much smarter than so many other people in the country that? Like, are you mocking me right now? No, I feel I like you never, are. I would never mock. I feel you. like this is a mocking. Under what circumstances would I ever mock uh, you? So I think we got to wrap up. So <laughs> disappointed. I'm so on that dis- attack I'm, on an insulted attack. I'm so disappointed. Why? I've this is the longest podcast I've ever done on the thing on tomorrow ever. It right? says oh five oh eight. That can't be right. No, we everything's it's all, talk, we're we're like it's like day day. We talked we talked for more than five the minutes. The sun is coming seconds. up. This is like a slumber party. Wait, we've talked for more than five minutes and twenty seconds, right? <laughs> yes, much more than five. Did minutes I go into a fugue? Did I go into a fugue? I state? think there was a point where you went into a fugue state. Yeah, but uh, did I miss something? Oh shit! No, I think you were here for all of it. Okay. You there were there were a lot of insults thrown. Yeah, all right. There was also a lot of great 
complimentary conversation. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. John, thank you for doing this. It you have a, to come back. One of my great pleasures. <laughs> <laughs> one of the best things I've done in a long time. But, I mean, but you will admit, when I said, when we started, I said, this is going to be the only thing you've done today that you get to swear on. That has been true. I was swearing all day long. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, okay, you get me done on air. Oh yeah, that's probably true. Anyhow, thank you for doing this. I actually have. This is. I mean, thank you for having. I know me. you think that I've been condescending and uh, rude to you, but I found this no only to momentarily. Be, I found this, despite your bullshit, I found this to be one of the most fascinating. Only momentarily, only momentarily condescending. No, this is really. You're not consistently condescending, just occasionally. That's my. That's my thing. Anyhow, John, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. And you have to come back. I'm glad maybe I, before maybe. Be- it, during the ge- the general, and we can talk about like oh, what where great. things have like awesome netted out. Okay, bye. Hey, thanks, John. Bye. Well, that is our show for this week. We'll be back next week with more tomorrow. And as always, I wish you and your family the very best. But unfortunately for your family, they're on the other side of Donald Trump's wall, so the very best is going to be very hard to come by for them. 